When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. It is Jay Scott. Welcome back to the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's staying warm out, out there in the middle of winter. I know I'm looking out at a uh, frozen tundra here outside of Chicago, and uh, I know spring training is in the air for baseball out in Arizona and Florida, so hope some people are out there enjoying that as well. Today's guest I am a huge fan of. I originally saw this duet open up for Blackberry Smoke early part of last year outside of Chicago. They hail from the UK, and we have Chris Turpin from Ida May. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. Thank you for having us. Thank you for doing us. I, I've been uh, trying to get you guys on for, for a while, and I'm, I'm just completely stoked that uh, you guys – are able to do it. Uh, I like I said, I saw you guys open twice for Blackberry Smoke outside the Chicago area and blew me away. Uh, when you guys took the stage, you know, with the whole Delta Blues influence and great songs, and it was just uh, it was magic. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, yeah, that was a really fun tour. That was a, a lot with those guys, and it was a yeah, it was a, a real cool audience for us. It just seemed to make perfect sense. Awesome. And then, uh, you know, since then, you've got the new album out. You just released the new live EP. We'll all get into that. Uh, but the first question we always ask a first-time guest is always the same, and that is the essence of the show. And just like every hook, every rock song has a hook that sucks people in, every Rock music fan has a moment, whether it's a band performance, a song or album that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Oh, that is such a good question. That's such a difficult one. <laughs> what was it for me? Mm, I think it was probably, um, it was either one or two things. I think it was probably the first time I heard can't you hear me knocking 
by the Rolling Stones. I just thought, what on earth is that? That was amazing. And then I think listening to Heartbreaker by Zeppelin was probably one of the first times I got really, really hooked and kind of addicted and just had to taste the sound and want to know everything about it. it you know, just, you know, by the age of about 15 or something. And uh, actually, I had a similar experience with um, some of the early Detroit stuff. I think it all happened around about the same time. I think I heard White Blood Cells by the White Stripes at the same time as I was getting into all that kind of British rock and roll. Uh, and it all just hit me like a like a tsunami. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned the, the song by the Stones and Zeppelin, they both have such identifiable riffs. And, you know, like you, you, know yeah. you instantly hear that. And you also have two bands that are very influenced by the blues. And, you know, the, the Stones and Zeppelin wear their blues influence on their sleeve and, you know, it is undeniable. How did that grow from after hearing those two songs, you know, Can You Hear Me Knocking and Heartbreaker? Well, I think with any of those being British I'm, you know, I'm always interested to get back to the source you know um, I've always been kind of interested in that whether it's kind of old things or books or writers or poetry and, and it probably stems from listening to music because you know as soon as you start hearing about Zeppelin and, and the Stones you realise you know the name's after a muddy wing up the stone the name's after a muddy water song and you go hey who's, who's muddy waters and then you, you start to go back and you know, we're we're old enough now that when we were first getting into a lot of this music, you know, there was no Spotify or anything. So I was talking to next door neighbours that had twelve inch vinyls or had CDs, and then you you know I just just try and discover you know one name would lead to another that would lead to another that would lead to another. Um, so I think it was probably Led Zeppelin. I knew they were using Robert Johnson lyrics, and with the Rolling Stones, I knew, I knew they were named after a Muddy Waters song. And then at the same time with the white stripe stuff, you know, that whole Detroit scene, there was people talking about about Sunhouse and Blind Willie McTell, and and I think, in, in, you know, I'd heard people say that you know they were really, really early players as well. So as soon as I could, I I was out at the record shops in in the UK and HMV and going to the blues section and you know, buying everything Robert Johnson had ever recorded for five quid and <laughs> and the next week I'd save up my pocket money and I'd go and buy, you know, blind blind Willie Johnson or something and just discovered this huge world of just astonishing talent and honesty and ferocity that I just wasn't getting in any in in any of the music that was listening I was listening to in kind of that was on the radio and my friends were listening to uh, and I just became hooked you know and feeling that you know the British influence uh, and kind of how this kind of did how beautifully it was being shared and absorbed and, and, and changed and celebrated was just something I was I was really hooked on and uh, have been ever since and you can hear a lot of it in those yeah, like you say the Zeppelin stuff and the Stone stuff and, and also they were just Bands with such a sonic signature, you know, no one else sounded like the Stones. And even now, I listen to those Stones records, and I'm like, how are they making that sound? You know, it, you know, I can you can pick apart the, the guitar, the drums, and the bass, but it's, 
it's not blues and it's not rock. It's, it's all this. It's the beautiful collaboration of all these ideas, you know. Yeah, it is always so interesting because especially with that music, I'm a huge Zeppelin fan and I love the Stones, is you always find something different every time you listen to it. Yeah, every time you go back, you hear something you haven't heard before, you hear it you hear it in a different way. It's, you rediscover it almost every time you go back, you know, it's, it's strange. And when, you know, you talk about the blues, right? And you talk about hearing, you know, Zeppelin, the White Stripes, the Stones, and how, you know, you went back and bought everything Robert Johnson recorded. And, you know, there's other artists, too. There's Elmore James, and there's, you know, uh, uh, who's that's the king of the slide, who I just love so much. Um, you know, growing in, up in Chicago, too, with, with the Chicago blues, which took from the Delta blues a lot. You know, did your blues interest grow? I mean, where did it where did it kind of go from Robert Johnson and, and all those artists after that? Um, well, the, the thing is, when you say blues, it's such a, it's kind of like saying Americana or something. It's a huge genre that spans just so much music. Um, so, I, for me, I became really interested because I was just picking up the guitar and I became obsessed with, you know, Hendrix, as everyone does, and then I, then I fell in love with Eric Clapton, and then I discovered the Blues Breakers from Eric Clapton as well, and again, that was another relationship. That was kind of how I got more into the electric side of things, I guess. Um, it was probably through probably through John May on the Blues Breakers, but really I went straight back to the acoustic stuff, so um, I, became, I just fell in love with slide guitar. Uh, so I got white, I absolutely uh, adored. And, uh, you know, Reverend Gary Davis, I absolutely love. Mississippi Fred McDowell, I completely love. Lightning Hopkins, I love. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just such a rich art form. And for me, one, I've never heard music like it, and I've never heard such virtuosic playing. You know, when you hear Brian Woody McTell playing that 12 string and playing slide, it's just a, a whole musical world that I had no frame of reference to. I was just like, well, where is this coming from? And as well, each, what I, I think why I became so interested and drawn to it is there's just so much variety and there's, each player is so idiosyncratic and uh, charismatic to their own, their own thing. Like no one can play guitar like Lightning Hopkins and he has a thing that is entirely his own. Same with Booker White, he has a thing that's entirely his own. Reverend Gary Davis is just this astonishing guitar player that developed, you know, on his right hand with two fingers, a, a style of playing that is above and beyond, you know, anything I'd ever heard before. But it was entirely his. It was completely unique to him. And that's why I think it became, I was so drawn in, into it because it's, it's, it was so unlike anything I, I was hearing on the radio or my parents listened to or anything like that. Uh, and each was so different from the last. And then by the time you hit the Chicago blues, again, that kind of um, charisma was carried through by Muddy Waters is completely different to Howlin' Wolf. is completely different to only B.B. King or something. There's these really unique um, just styles and voices. And it came with such attitude and swagger <laughs> that I, I, I just... And I was kind of all of it at once. Not that it's 
it had the same attitude. I think, you know, I mean, from Muddy Waters, learning from Charlie Patton and Howling Wolf, you know, being on the same farm and learning the same stuff, you can become kind of obsessed with, with, with all of it all at once, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, a broad subject. But that's how I found it. I just threw myself in at the deep end. But I started with the really early 1920s acoustic stuff because I knew that that was uh, the earliest form of the blues I could get to that had influenced the rock and roll bands that I loved. Yeah, I know. It is such a unique art form, like you said. And it's one of the very, I think it's the only music genre that completely feeds off of emotion. And what you're feeling when you're playing it is how you play it. Right. I mean, it's and that's what makes it so unique is there's no really you know, technical aspect of the blues. It's all about what you're feeling inside. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of my favorite quotes, I think, is a Muddy Waters quote, which is, um, I'm not doing anything that Mozart hasn't done before me, which I think is just such a genius a sentiment because essentially music is communication and moving people. It's just just so happens that the blues is a very raw form of that communication with no bells and whistles. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it's amazing for that. So where did it go from there? So you, you, you dived into the blues. What motivated you to pick up a guitar? What motivated you to start singing and writing your own music? Uh, well, me and Steph have really musical backgrounds. Steph's mom is Irish used to sing a lot of folk songs and she grew up being you know forced to play piano and flute and sing and she was and she discovered jazz about the same time as I discovered the blues she fell in love with Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Etta James about the same time as I fell in love with you know Robert Johnson and Zeppelin <laughs> and whereas I grew up in church choirs singing in church choirs and my mum uh, as a piano teacher so I always had music around the house but my dad played guitar, and because I was just surrounded by piano constantly, hearing people play, you know, you know, early piano pieces in the next room, I wanted to play something different, so I picked up the guitar. And um, I think, you know, I, I, I was in a band, you know, in high school or whatever. And that was it was you know real identity for me when I when I realised I just fell in love with music, and we all know that feeling of when you first get it, you know, you discover something that's uniquely kind of your own and you fall in love with it with a, with a bunch of friends a record or a couple of bands or something and I just got hooked and I was in this band in high school and the lead singers left and I was like shit I need to carry on doing this <laughs> so I just started to sing because I wanted to continue being in a band and you know then that was around about the same time I, I learned about the more acoustic kind of blues players and uh, I went into that and I basically knew that, you know, that it's not my music to play necessarily, but I, I loved the styles and techniques and the melodies of what those guys were doing. So as soon as I could, I, I started to write my own, own songs, kind of using some of those techniques. Um, yeah, I just, I just kept going and kept going. And yeah, we were a rock and roll band first, me and Steph, before we did this. So we um, had a couple of records kind of, doing a heavier rock thing on the Zeppelin kind of basis. And, uh, and yeah, and then it turned into what it is today. So talk about that history. What, what, how did Ida May develop into what it is now? 
Well, we were, uh, like I said, a rock and roll band. We, we were signed to some kind of heavier labels that were pushing us in a rock, kind of rock direction. And as you probably tell from what I've just kind of mentioned in our influences, is I love heavy rock, but it's not really where I think, you know, our, our voice and, and, and how I write uh, sits best. So we started Ida May with, you know, Ida May is the name of the Sunny Terry song that me and Steph first learned to sing together. And we wanted to do something that had a really simple and kind of untainted, pure uh, songwriting process you know, that wasn't didn't have any record companies or band members or A and R men telling us what we should or shouldn't play. And we just wrote songs that we really, really cared about. Um, and the process was really simple. Like if we cared about the song and thought it was good, that's all that matters. And in terms of you know, we we end, we came out at the end of our rock and roll band, and we weren't sure what we were going to do, but we had enough money for a cup to pay rent for a few months. And we were like, "Hey, let's track a load of these songs in the living room, send them out to some people, and see what they think." So I put together this really honest little collection of songs and demos, and sent it out to a few people that we knew. And really, really quickly, we had a I think a better response than anything we'd done before, and uh, we ended up getting signed pretty quick only a few months after we we tracked those demos and uh yeah we we ended up first signing to to Decca and, and doing half the record with them and <laughs> then it's a very long story and <laughs> convoluted then we kind of not fell out with them but we you know we weren't seeing eye to eye so we left and then we, you know, we, we had great management at that point because it was just me and Steph on our own and we were really lucky to make a contact with someone over here in Nashville, a fantastic management company that picked us up. And then they started to guide us to come over to the States. And then we ended up signing to Warner Brothers with Seymour Stein for a while. He signed the Ramones, Madonna. And, and then we were living in central London in this kind of little, this tiny little room. And then we moved out to, out to the States. And as we were flying to Nashville, the guy that signed us to Warner Brothers left Warner Brothers <laughs> then we ended up getting the record back and then we ended up putting it out under our own record company with 30 Tigers I don't know maybe six months after that so it's been a pretty wild ride getting this record out but it all started here yeah, in our living room with, with with just a kind of wanted to write some some love songs and, and write some songs you really cared about that were just kind of pretty personal and pretty honest it sounds like a, a wild and crazy ride. Sounds like a lot of challenges. What specifically, you know, was it your vision was not allowed to kind of be heard or was it other people trying to tell you what to play? What was the, the situation there? It's it's really, it's hard to explain a lot of the, the inner workings of the music industry unless you, you know, bands have kind of been through it and seen it. It's, it's, the, the inner workings of large labels and industry and where, you know, art meets commerce is not a very nice place. <laughs> and I think what me, what I've always written and what we try to do is not typically kind of particularly commercial. It's not, it's not immediately radio friendly and stuff. So kind of being pushed in those directions because you have to make money. You know, if people have spent a lot of money. There's a lot of give and take and, and there's a, there's a fair amount of compromise goes on. So it wasn't necessarily anything major. People were telling us to do anything. I think we just come to three records and 
we weren't in a particularly good record deal and we were just kind of a bit chained to it really so we kind of managed to wriggle out of those chains and just try something new and we kind of decided that look we need to do something that has kind of no compromises and it's just how we want it um, and we were lucky enough to manage to get out of those deals there's a lot of bands that don't and they get shacked, kind of shackled to these 360 deals and you know and they, and they can't get out it's just a you know as I'm sure you have we were a young band on the first first album and, and trying to navigate the music industry right now with, with streaming and smaller budgets and Spotify and all these different ways people are consuming music. It's just a really uh, interesting, complicated time to be doing it. And because we've, you know, we've been doing this since we were quite young, different bands, we've done it for uh, six or seven years, maybe more, you know, actually definitely more, <laughs> probably nearer 10 years, you know, from when we first start, started our kind of baby steps the industry has changed dramatically and um, yeah we just wanted to we wanted to do it our own way basically and that's why we, we started and moved in this direction you know we have a common theme here with a lot of conversations we have on the podcast and that is the state of music and whether it's how we consume it whether we you know talk about how, you know how bands are on different platforms and all the platforms that do exist I'm almost of the opinion that there are too many platforms because there's too many places for people to go, whereas years prior or decades prior, there was one or two, you know, there was rock radio and MTV for a long time, and now that has completely changed. Now you've got YouTube, you've got Spotify, you've got all the streaming services, and I almost sometimes think that it's, it's hard for a rock fan to navigate through that or hard for a music fan to navigate through that. What is your opinion about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could wax lyrical about this for hours now <laughs> <laughs> because we have, these we have these conversations on a daily basis, especially as you know, we're working on our next record now, working out how we're going to record it, put it out, all these things. I think personally, I think, the, you know, it's, it's kind of, in theory, the internet has helped to democratize how bands rise up. So, you know, you can put your your video of you singing something on YouTube and in theory, if, if the algorithm's working, it's good and gets shared, you can go viral and you become successful. But in actual fact, like you say, it just means there's no filters anymore. So there's just an awful lot more noise to cut through. And, you know, back in the day, if you were signed by Atlantic or Capital or Columbia, that was kind of a sign of quality. They were the filter. If you were a Columbia artist, you know, that meant something. So if you listen to, you know, Springsteen or whoever else Columbia was signing or something, you'd be like, okay, this is a mark of quality there. The filter, they are behind it. They're telling me, they're directing me in this direction. And, you know, by them being signed to Columbia, it says something about who they are as an artist and what they stand for, the sort of music they're putting out or what have you. And, you know, that is kind of changing more and more now. And, also, just in general, if you want to get specific on rock bands as well, rock bands are at a huge disadvantage right now in terms of just the, the starting costs. You know, a record company can sign a, a young, you know, male or female pop singer. They can sign them for a small deal. They can put them in with a lot of songwriters who are working off laptops. They can get 15 tracks together within 
couple of months. They they can be you know radio ready within a couple you know a couple of mixing days. Of a very low cost, they've got an entire year, two years worth of releases that cost them very little to put out. Whereas a rock and roll band, you know, if you're recording with a drummer, a bassist, a keyboard player, a couple of guitar players, vocals, you know, you need a you need a studio to record a drum kit typically. You know, you need a bigger studio setup. You need engineers. You need da da da. You need you need mastering. You need mixers, and the, the costs involved putting a record together are just so much more expensive. And it's just like costs an awful lot more for a record company to support and pay for, um, you know, to, to putting rock and roll records together now. So it's, you know, there isn't as much promo and big push money, I think, for rock and roll bands in major labels as there is, you know, simpler, more modern digital recording bands because just simple economics, you know, you can sign five artists, you know, solo artists, for the price of one rock and roll band right now, you know? So I think it's an exciting time because rock and roll will have to go underground and find new ways of doing it. But it's, uh, even in terms of getting a rock and roll band on the road, it's expensive in those baby stages, you know? So, you know, you hear more and more of great artists and bands stopping because they're saying it's kind of fiscally irresponsible <laughs> for them to carry on if they want to have, you know, families and that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, in terms of streaming platforms, I agree. I think there is an awful lot of noise out there, and you know, wallet share is being pulled in all sorts of different directions. Uh, and also, it's just—I think it's distracting. You know, I think you know we all—I love listening to albums as albums, but I'm kind of old-fashioned in that respect because most people don't do that anymore. They listen to playlists, you know, which is kind of it's tearing apart the art form and craft and making a record, which is a really beautiful body of work. And, you know, it's kind of where, you know, an artist can really, it's like an oil canvas or something. You can real, you can tell a story on a record. You can't do that in one song. And with people, people that are now getting signed for one song and they're pushing towards single after single after single. Some, some of the subtleties and artistry and, and great rock and roll records like Hooker to Zeppelin, you know, you go from a crazy acoustic jam to a heavy seven, eight minute rock and roll jam and a blues song and a this and a that, you know, you're losing some of that uh, variety and diversity and dynamic in, in the records that are being made today because it's not what's selling. You know, you need to be the loudest thing on the playlist. You need to be at the top of the playlist. You know, it needs to grab people's attention within 10 seconds. Otherwise they'll skip, you know, and the algorithm will know. <laughs> anyway, so I told you I could talk to you. No, that's great. You know, cause we do talk about this a lot because there's a lot of things that affect rock and roll. I think a lot of it is how we absorb it and how it is put in front of us. It's also a lack of infrastructure. You know, when you, and I've mentioned this several times, and I know my listeners know this, is, you know, I, I compare it a lot to country music. When you think of country music, they've got their own channel. They've got three, four country stations in every market. They have the legacy yeah. artists, you know, working with the newer artists to kind of bring, to kind of bring in a new audience for them. Um, there's a lot more infrastructure. And, and, and here's the other thing. The country fan really does support new rock, okay? they or I'm sorry, new country. They do support new country music yeah. when it comes out. Whereas I think because the only rock that you hear on radio right now is 
classic rock, and it's the same 50 to 60 songs that are constantly being uh, rotated, yeah. you know, um, that affects it. So now as a rock fan, you've got to go and find it, right? You, you've got to put some work into it. So you got to get on YouTube. you got to go on Spotify. you got to go on all these places. And unfortunately, not every person has the time to do that. And that is a huge, huge impact to to how rock music is absorbed. It is, yeah. Like it's, it's kind of a vicious, vicious circle. If the industry is paying for it, it, and it's not being seen by the world, like say the infrastructure dwindles with it as well. I think you're completely right. And I think pop country, you know, is similar to what I was saying about you know more commercial and pop music that's being made more digitally. Uh, it, 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 it's cheaper to sign, you know one solo country artist and it is to try and support a rock and roll band uh, and and so yeah and like you say I get sick of it as well I mean how many times do you think Floyd on the front cover of whatever magazine you know it's 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 a shame that there isn't more light thrown on young bands uh, and then also I think a rock audience as well you know I think you're right in saying you know, the country fans are quite kind to new country because of you know there's as a young, as some young rock and roll bands that come up, there could be some pretty harsh press from you know the rock, the rock and roll audience sometimes as well because you're um, kind of there are these kind of just pillars of rock greatness that you're always immediately compared to, uh, and if you don't compete or there's too many similarities, you get you can get kind of whipped for that, you know. Yeah, I, I do. I, th- I think there's a a case of building something up and then trying to tear it down which makes no sense to me and there's also the avenue of clickbait you know sometimes when it becomes trendy to bash a new artist or bash a new band yeah everybody wants to get in on it so they make these taglines that people want to click on and they get more views and 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 people read it more and and it's it's a vicious cycle when that happens because What's really not happening is the music isn't being judged for the music. And the new artist is almost not allowed to develop their own sound. You know, you know, we, we talked about Zeppelin, you know, early on in this conversation. I've mentioned this before. The band Rush from Canada, when their first album came out, they were compared to the Canadian Led Zeppelin. As Rush evolved and Rush developed... You would not compare them to Led Zeppelin anymore. They were allowed to develop their own style, and I, I think yeah, I think absolutely. I think people need to remember that when they're comparing bands to legacy artists and legendary artists. That hey, this is their first record or second record. Let this artist develop because you know it used to be bands were were given three records, three albums to kind of develop their own sound and develop their own audience before a record company either continued on with them or they cut bait. Where now, like you said, if, if it doesn't, if the single is released on Friday and it doesn't happen by Monday, they're on to the next. You're completely right. And it, cause it costs so much to make a record. If you don't recoup, make that money back on album one. I mean, how many times now do we see bands putting out one album and then just disappearing off the face of planet earth? And that's just due, partly due to the economics, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, there's an, an interview with an English band I remember not long ago saying, thank goodness that, you know, back in the 90s, we, we still managed to get a three-hour deal, he said, because we were crap on our first album. He said, we, we got the recipe right by the third. 
learn, you know, what we wanted and what we wanted to sound like. Whereas you're not given, you're not given that chance anymore because it takes time. It really does take time. It takes exposure to an audience as well to really know what you're capable of and what your songs do and what you want to say. It's, and this is an artistic creative process and it just takes time. You know, so of course, you know, there are, there are references on record one, but you know, who knows what these, you know, young bands could have turned into or would have turned into if they were given more of a chance. Very true. Now with you guys, Chasing Light was the debut that was released last year. Phenomenal record. Um, how was the collaboration with that? You know, talk us, you know, what was that like making that record? Uh, well, it was a bit of a, it was a dream come true for us. So we, we, we'd, we'd written the record. I'd, I'd written most of it and, and uh, it's, Steph's written some of it as well and Steph's a fantastic keys player and so she played keys on the whole record and we got lucky and we tried out a few different producers and we were pushed in a couple of different directions the last producer we ended up working with we got a call from Ethan Johns who we're a huge fan of so he's the son of Glenn Johns and you know Glenn Johns and also his, his Ethan's uncle as well was the engineer Andy Johns I think on all of the Zeppelin records and stuff that you know and his Ethan's dad did everything from the Beatles to the Faces to the Eagles to parts of the Stones and then Ethan his son um, kind of got, got well known for I think he, he partly discovered Ray Montaigne and uh, Ryan Adams and the first three Kings of Leon records and Laura Marling and he was just basically through all the older music that we were listening to growing up, Ethan's records always became a part of what we were listening to. They cut through the noise and those early Ray Montaigne records and the first three Kings of Leon records in the UK were just the coolest thing um, and seriously kind of punky rock and roll. And uh, so we, we dreamt of working with him and he invited us to his house and we had lunch with him and then we stayed for dinner and he decided that he wanted to work with us. So we got to... Um, we got to work with him and when you work with Ethan he has a pretty serious uh, kind of code of, of what he thinks is kind of important in terms of making a record it's an extremely organic process so we cut everything live um, straight to tape um, we did about maybe four takes for each song uh, we used a lot of first takes uh, Ethan's an amazing player so on a lot of the records he makes, he plays drums. So Ethan played drums on the whole record. We had a fantastic bass player who plays with us called Nick Keeney. And he played um, double bass and electric bass. And pretty much we worked at real world studios in the, in the kind of wilds of the English countryside and, and another one called Eskillo in the similar parts of, of Somerset in, in England. And we just talked a lot and cut the record basically straight to tape. Um, what you know, me and Steph are just, um, you know, we were working on the record and how we how we were playing it in our bedroom and living room in the UK, and then we got to the studio. We didn't have a band, so Ethan kind of became the band. And uh, what you hear on the record is pretty much the first time we ever played those songs uh, with anyone. So what you hear cut on that record is is, a, is it's just the first time those songs came out. It kind of took shape. Um, which is really exciting. And you now it was kind of nerve wracking doing vocals live and guitar live and solos and things because it's not often done. 
today. But Ethan is a you know huge advocate of uh, it's just how he makes records. And for us, it was important to do it that way because I think for our fans and the people that have fallen in love with the record, it's a really kind of beautiful record to listen to. Well, you know, I hope it is because you're in the room with us, you know, you become part of the space, you become part of the story. There's a real um, dynamic and narrative to, to everything that happens. You know, you can hear my voice bleeding into the drum kit, the drum kit coming out into the piano. And it hopefully has a sense of, uh, I know, togetherness and oneness that you don't hear on many records today because records aren't, as we just discussed, aren't made that way very often and aren't cut live. So it was a very collaborative process and it was very um, kind of relaxed and it was it was very easy and we just kind of let what came out um, kind of come out. We didn't work too furiously on, you know, doing seven vocal takes or something and comping things together. We just let the songs live and I guess we were kind of careful. We wanted to combine some of you know, the early blues and country and Americana sounds that we love like Resonator and and kind of duetting vocals and piano. We wanted to combine those with kind of more modern sounds and move it into new directions. So there is some synthesizers on there and there's some old 70s drum machines. Just tried to kind of reshape a few things. And uh, yeah, cut some pretty heavy jams as well, which was fun with Ethan on drums. And Yeah, so what you hear is, is, is pretty untainted from <laughs> what came out on, on the studio floor. So yeah. Now, having recorded music prior to that, you know, there was what was the biggest challenge in going in that organic type of way? Um, I, I just, I think again, it's kind of like committing to it. It's kind of like, you know, it makes you perform differently. If you know you're on a computer and you know you can re- retract this or do that later, or you can fix that in post. You play kind of differently, but when the red light comes on and you have to play, uh, you have to, you know, you have to get it right in one, start to finish. There is, it's kind of there's a there's a large amount of risk that goes into recording that way, and that was probably the um, the hardest thing to deal with. It was kind of the nerves sometimes, and I guess that was probably the, one of the most difficult things putting the record together, and and also then then knowing. We had long conversations with Ethan about, you know, you know, when we did make mistakes on takes, whether we should fix them or not, you know. And we really went into this kind of diminishing returns thing because if you listen to those early Zeppelin records that we were talking about again, you know, there, there are mistakes left, right, and center. There's out of tune vocals. There's off beats. There's you know, there's stuff that isn't quite perfect, which in today's record making we would fix. But back then, you didn't have a choice, so you didn't. And also, I think it was more appreciated for those mistakes, given the sort of human realism that's really freaking important. So when we did come up with mistakes that you know, I wasn't sure about, Steph wasn't sure about, we'd talk for like, I don't know, 20 minutes on whether we should fix it, because what are we, what are we gaining by fixing it and what are we losing? So there's a lot of discussions about kind of diminishing returns. And of course, you know, you listen to those early rock and roll records and blues and stuff, and even down to the Sun record stuff that was coming out of Memphis and chess stuff that was coming out of, you know, Chicago. It's 
there's tons of errors and cool stuff that happens that we shouldn't iron out. So that was kind of the hardest thing is what do we change, what do we keep? And also, just for us being the artist, you know, trying to hear it from a third-person perspective, hear it how Ethan was hearing it rather than, you know, oh, you know, listening to your own voice and not enjoying it or something, you know. He's not hearing it in, the, in that way, nor is our audience. So that was the biggest learning curve, I think. I also, you know, imagine, too, you know, you want to keep that rawness in there. You know, you want to keep that feeling because as we started this conversation, we talk about your influence in the blues and how it was all based on emotion. You want to keep that emotion in the music. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's another thing with, you know, if you track an entire thing live, there is a huge journey in, in the lyric and the melody. And there's a conversation going on between all the players in the room. So, you have to kind of be quite careful and listen through to each take because there is a different feeling of personality to every every take you lay down when you make a record that way. And, uh, yeah, there's, from that kind of raw, raw performance, that can be very different, can, can be very different feelings from take to take, which is fascinating, which is not something I really had appreciated until we did this record. Um, and it's also for, you know, if you listen to older rock and roll records as well and you hear alternate takes of, you know, Dylan songs or, um, again, Led Zeppelin tracks or Free is another band I love, you hear alternate takes of, you know, the, the take that didn't make it on the final album. You know, they can feel completely different and it's fascinating. So you guys just released the live EP, Live in Memphis, and then you have the song, Baby, I Need a Driver. What is next in 2020 for Ida May? Uh, well, right now, we just got back to, um, back to Nashville from the UK, and we are heading out on a Joe Bonamassa's blues cruise next week, and we're going out with Tommy Emmanuel for some more acoustic dates. Uh, and we have some festivals coming up in the summer, but the main thing we're doing right now is working on the next record. We've written about 20 songs, and we're just working out how we're going to record it. Uh, literally, before I got on the, on the phone to, <laughs> with you today, we're, we're discussing exactly what we're going to do, and uh, I think we're going to self-produce it here in Nashville, and, and maybe track a few things in, in the UK and in and on our travels, and we're going to we're going to put a new record together as soon as we possibly can. And hopefully, if, if we get it together in time, start putting out some music um, after the summer and in the autumn, and, and get a record out in the spring of next year. You know, is there any type of direction that you guys want to go in, or just can keep continuing developing the Ida May sound? I think we're going to build from what we had before, but we have we have a lot of ideas in terms of how we want to put things together. We've got some pretty cool cool songs I think with I think the best songs we've ever written so I'm, I'm really excited uh, but yeah deciding to self-produce um, Ethan's still going to help us do the record but deciding to self-produce is a big choice so we don't we're not really sure how it's going to come out <laughs> until we start which we're going to do ASAP so yeah and is it you know is the collaborative effort going to be any different in terms of this record versus the last it is, yeah, it is. We've decided to, we're going to track a lot of it live, but on our own. And me and Steph have been writing together a lot more uh, on the piano and things, so 
there's some there's just kind of types of songs that we've never written before, and I've been collecting up all sorts of weird instruments, um, kind of Civil War, American Civil War instruments and stuff. So there's going to be a few different tunes, kind of styles of instruments. I've got this twelve-string resonator that's that's going to play quite a central part of the record, and um, we're going to again, I think, push to to mix in some more interesting sounds. So mixing more synthetic sounds, synthetic kind of modern sounds with these kind of older instruments, I think is going to be a large part of the record. And um, yeah, we're just going to see what happens. <laughs> the process is going to be different. We're going to, we're going to track it all. And I think we're going to send it out to Ethan and he's going to, he's going to be a piece of it as well. Uh, but we won't be tracking it live with a band this time. We're going to be building it up slightly differently. So but we're still going to be working live. So it's going to be a really interesting process. It sounds like it. I'm really excited because, you know, like I said, I love the first record. Um, love seeing you guys live and, and cannot wait for more material because what you guys do, and for my listeners out there, if you haven't had a chance to see Item A live, please do because they are absolutely incredible. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we've been taught, we've been playing live so much now. It's, you know, probably our live EP on Spotify is <laughs> more of a representation of what we sound like and our record is, you know. Um, but yeah, we've we've had an incredible time since we came over to the US and we really, we really appreciate it. Our little, little group of fans has, has been amazing to us. Being able to go out with everything from, you know, country acts to heavy rock bands has just been uh, a dream come true for us. And it's, it's fun to see, you know, what we do is kind of Brits shining new light on kind of just our Americana, you know, bluesy, rocky sound. It's, it's just been fun to to share it and to, and to be over here and playing, you know, our kind of British transatlantic kind of <laughs> sounds to an American audience has been a, a dream come true. And we feel really lucky that anyone's kind of responding to it. So it's been great. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure conversing with you about Ida May and the state of rock music and the future of what you guys are doing. I look forward to it. Once again, big thanks for coming on the podcast and, and doing the show. Well, thanks so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Everyone, that's Chris Turpin from Ida May. Once again, this is Jay Scott from The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's staying warm, and we will talk again soon. Thank you very much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.